Uh, and so it's been, it's been a comedy of errors a bit this morning, and so I ask for, for your patience. Uh, we're about to go to the text for the sermon, and usually I would have a nice presentation to go with it and, the, and the, track the text as we go. Uh, that is a completed presentation. It's just one that I failed to upload this morning. <clears throat> uh, and so use your imagination at, at different points, and we'll be fine as we go. But um, the main text will be on the screen uh, for the sermon this morning. So I would invite you then to turn with me in your Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. I should mute that. <coughs> to the second chapter of Ephesians. We've been going through Ephesians for the last few, uh, a couple of months now, going all the way through chapter one, and now we are about uh, in the middle of chapter two. This morning we'll be starting in verse 11 and looking at verses 11, 12, and 13. Uh, if you're using the Bible in your pew, by the way, that's page 1160. And so we begin, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. <clears throat> Over the last two Sundays, uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at verses 8 and 9, uh, probably the most famous passage in chapter 2, perhaps in the book of Ephesians, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, right? This not of your doing, it's the gift of God so that no one may boast. And then last Sunday we looked at verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then the last point of that sermon was basically, that's what we've been created for, therefore let us get to work with the work that God has put before us. It's important that we start just with a brief refresher of that. Because our text this morning begins with the word, therefore. Okay? And he's just told them in verse 10, I think actually the therefore is referring to all of chapter 2 so far. More on that later. But remember that in verse 10, he's told them who they are. Well, actually beginning in verse 8, right? This is who you are. You've been saved by the grace of God through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift. And verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Where's workmanship? We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. And therefore, verse 11, therefore, remember who you were. Remember that you were called the uncircumcision. Remember that you were separated from Christ. You were far off, but now you've been brought near. What I want to show you at the front end of this sermon is that Paul has told them what God has done, right? Saved them by the gift of grace, through, faith, through the gift of faith, and made them new creations in Christ, you're His workmanship. And what God has called them to, the works uh, that He's prepared for you, He then says, therefore. God has saved you, called you to get to work, so do that and remember where you came from. Remember what God has done. Remember that you are part of a new covenant family now. 
What this tells us is that the work that God has set before us is fueled by gratitude, accomplished by His people, and cleansed by His blood. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, and these works will be accomplished. And part of our responsibility is to know who we are and where we came from. So I have at least three things I want to show you from the text this morning. The first is the purpose or at least one purpose, of your past. He says, remember who you were. Second, the promise of God. And third, the power of the blood of Christ. So the purpose of the past, the promise of God, and the power of the blood. So we'll start with the purpose of the past. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Paul, what we see here is Paul's understanding his letter to be addressing at least a majority Gentile church, probably exclusively a Gentile church. He starts out by saying, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. So this is telling us about his audience. What that tells us then is that this congregation was, uh, was probably entirely made up of converts to Christianity given the time, right? We, we, hadn't, we haven't had time yet for a few generations to be Christian. And so a, 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 this is going to be a congregation of, of relatively recent converts, and they're not Jewish. They would have grown up in the context of a pagan culture of gods and goddesses, of local temples, of rites and rituals and special days far, far away from the God of the Jews. And upon hearing the gospel, they've been baptized and are participating together in the new hope that they have in Christ. For some of you in here, that is something like your story, something like it. But what I mean by that is not only are you ethnically Gentile, which I think goes for just about everybody in here, but you also did not grow up in a Christian family. You were a stranger to Jesus and his blessings, and by his blood, he brought you near. You might even be the first Christian in your family, maybe even going back a few generations. For others, while you might be ethnically Gentile, you are not you are not entirely strangers to the covenants. You were from your earliest days members of the, of the new covenant community we call the church. Brought in by baptism, walking in faith, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus every day. And having a faith that is yours. But whatever your story is, I want you to notice that Paul is acknowledging that for his readers, their past has a purpose. That purpose is it serves as a narrative to glorify the power of Jesus and specifically the power of His blood to bring near those who are far off. Those who get called unreachable. Those who get written off as beyond hope. We love to invent special categories of people who we find more difficult for God to save. Especially, let's be honest, if we've been praying for them for a long time and are not seeing anything happening. But... What you need to understand is that uh, when, you, when you see that through the lens of the gospel, it's not an honest way of looking at other people. They might be harder for you to reach. They might be harder in your experience to reach. But they are not harder for God to save. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. He says, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision 
by what is called the circumcision. Your translation might have by the so-called circumcision, which is made by flesh, made in the flesh by hands. Paul is, of course, referencing the Old Testament, Old Covenant sign of circumcision given to Abraham in Genesis, a ritual that would put a mark in the flesh of all the Israelite boys. A ritual that is fulfilled in the New Covenant in baptism, and after its fulfillment, it becomes... It becomes a threat of division, circumcision does, in the New Testament church. The false teaching was that you, you had to undergo the rite of circumcision and become Jewish before you could properly become Christian. What I want you to see is, is that the way Paul speaks of this, he, he speaks to the power of labels in the way that, that we come to Christ and how we see ourselves. He says, you were called this by the so-called that. Right. What I want you to see there as a related point is that labels are extremely powerful things. Some of them are external. That is, by that I mean they're given to you by other people. Some are internal. You take them on yourself. There's an entire identity movement that is named by its labels, right? LGBTQIA+. Right? The labels are actually the name of the movement. There are other labels... Right? Other labels that we use, I'll get back to the sexual identity labels in a moment, but we also use personality labels, right? I'm an INFTP uh, 0.2 with a three wing, and I'm a 4.5 out of 10 <laughs> after you took that personality test. Understanding personality can have some value, but only if it informs your understanding of the sins you are most inclined to excuse in yourself. Okay, so rather than saying, oh, my personality type is a blue seven, and that's why I'm more inclined to procrastination, just go ahead and say, apparently I'm a blue seven, which means I'm always looking for ways to excuse my sloth and laziness. Weaponize your labels for obedience to Jesus. Have you ever wondered why the New Testament spends so much time on the concept? Paul keeps coming back again and again to this concept of identity in Christ, being in Christ. It's because labels are so powerful, especially when we take them on and accept them of ourselves. We are seeing today that when people invent sexual identities or identities based on their addictions and then invent that terminology and take it on for themselves, they quickly reach a point where to question the constructed identity and label is to question the dignity or personhood of the person. So that if we say, no, that sexual identity you've invented for yourself is not true, what we hear is, you, uh, what, what, is what is heard is, I am not valuable to you as a human being. And Christians have worked very, very hard publishing countless books and articles in an effort to communicate to our sexually twisted world and say, no, that's not what we're saying. Such that I am fine at this point with saying, we both know that's not what I'm saying. But we are saying that as a people in Christ, when our perceived identity is in conflict with who Jesus is, or with obedience to His Word, Jesus always wins. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 6. You might know this passage. It's not on the screen. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Paul tells the Corinthians, Do you not know that the, unrighteousness will not, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in the very next verse he says, and such were some of you. Those were your labels, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. This is why we put God's name on you in baptism. You are under this new name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is the new identity into which you have been washed, Christian. And so, to this extent, I hope you see your past has a purpose. It helps you to be grateful for your present and what God has done with you. Next, we come to the promise of God. That's the second point. And Paul lists three things here. So, if you like, uh, uh, the, the second heading is the promise of God, and under that, Three things that Paul talks about. Separation from Christ, separation from the covenant community, separation from hope. All of these are answered by the promise of God, but we have these three separation problems that Paul points to in verse 12. And so he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. The exclusive claims of Christianity remain one of... The most offensive parts about our whole religion. That while you can know facts about God, you can also at the same time be very distant from Jesus. And therefore be distant from God. There is no knowing God while being distant from Jesus. The most basic message of our faith, right? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Son in human flesh came to be our second Adam, our new covenant head. And by His obedience, death, and resurrection, we are a people who have died with Him, who have risen with Him, and stand in Him perfectly clean and forgiven. We must always... I know, i got to get a few amens to that, right? There's something in your heart that wells up. It's good. We must always be mindful of what we've been rescued from. That's where Paul is directing their attention. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Take a minute, think on that, realize what you've been rescued from. This is important for us to be clear about because every human being is created in God's image. Every person is both a body and a soul. And so we, I'm saying we humans are actually very good at projecting spiritual feelings spiritual sentiments and having spiritual experiences even if we don't know Jesus. I want to say that again. We are created in God's image. We have a body and a soul. And so you have a spiritual capacity to have, I'll put it in quotation marks, spiritual experiences even without knowing Jesus. What kind of spirit? I'll leave that to you. But we need to be honest about this because many people are trading on their own sense of the spiritual and presume that therefore they are at peace with God. That's the point I'm trying to make. That we can have very spiritual experiences, spiritual feelings, spiritual sentiments apart from Christ and judge by that that we're right with God when you are in fact separated from Christ. 
What we find in this text is that it's possible for people, even whole tribes of people like Gentiles, like Ephesians, to be separated from Christ, strangers to His promises. He speaks of nearness to God, Paul does, as an, as an Israel blessing. And indeed, this was the great boast of, of Israel. God dwells in our midst. By consequence, all the other nations were indeed far off. And so Paul calls them to remember. He understands that their work will not happen without their unity. And so to strengthen their unity, he calls them back to their common testimony. Remember, all of you, what you used to be, what you've been saved from, what you were before Christ. And so I said, the next, the next bit of separation is separation from that covenant community. Don't miss that the reconciliation we have in Christ doesn't just mean that we as individuals have a new relationship to God. It does mean that. But we're also brought into this new covenant family. Look at verse 12 again. Alienated from what kind of a family? Well, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice that Paul references many covenants, plural, one promise. He's speaking of the one glorious promise of the Messiah back in Genesis 3.15, with a promise, that promise being renewed through several administrations of God's covenant with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, culminating in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you're part of this covenant family now. You're no longer alienated from the commonwealth of the people of God, so to speak. You've now been brought into this family. Listen to the way our confession of faith puts it. This is from uh, Westminster uh, chapter 25. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the house and family of God. That's the unity we've been given, entrance into a family, not just entrance into a set of beliefs or doctrines or ideas about God. You've been brought into a family. So notice that the good news of what Jesus has done doesn't only bring us near to Jesus, it does do that. It also brings us near to each other. This is why you will frequently hear me use the term covenant community to speak of the church. We've been brought into that, not only fellowship with our Lord, but fellowship with a local congregation. We're a covenanted community. What does that mean practically? Well, it means that while we certainly do have identities as individuals and we struggle with individual sins and individual failures, we also have a family identity. There's an I and there's also a we that's integral to the Christian life. The third one, I said separation from hope. Remember that it, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To say it again, Paul is using the past with a view to cultivating joyful gratitude in the hearts of his hearers. He's reminding them what they were saved out of. He's reminding them of what they used to be. And as we see here, of the hopelessness of the state they were in. God means to awaken your sense of the distance between you and Him so that you might be left amazed 
when he closes that gap. And I know some of you are hearing this and thinking, (laughs) a lot of you actually, okay, Pastor Brian, that's great. The thing is, I've been a Christian my whole life, right? More or less. As far as I know, there was never a time when I didn't know Jesus, right? And so it is admittedly hard for me to look back on my past life of terrible, you know, that time I smacked my little brother, right? I don't, I don't feel as like far off to the covenants of promise because I've grown up in the covenants of promise. To that I would say, yes, you most certainly have. You're not wrong about that. But then the question is, well, if, if this sense of gratitude to God is supposed to help my humility and my joy and my work, how do I, how do I get it inside of me if I've never felt alienated? I would say that's a pretty good question, a pretty fair question for the generations that come after the book of Ephesians. My advice to you here, and that's what this is, I'm about to give sort of a word of pastoral advice on how to kind of interact and face off with that challenge, is that to keep in mind that you're a descendant. This is actually where I think if you, if you have knowledge of your family lineage and family history, it can actually be very helpful. Because no matter your testimony, at some point you are more than likely the descendant of pagans, right? I mean, at some point, the descendant of pagans. And so uh, God was kind to your ancestors at some point in history and turned the proverbial tide of your clan. Remember that Paul is addressing Gentiles as a tribe, like as as a group of people, as an ethnic uh, reality. He's saying, this was true of all of you, and God has been kind to you. I remember once, uh, uh, recently, uh, hearing a, a Christian man narrate his discovery that digging into his own family history, he found out that he was a descendant uh, of some Scottish heritage, and the more he read, the more he discovered that his family was really deeply involved in a blood feud with another Scottish family, right? Sort of like a Hatfields and McCoys thing, right? Lots of blood, lots of ugliness, lots of murder and even like massacre. Traps set by wicked men and then they take out half the clan or whatever. And so he said, uh, the, 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 the adversarial tribe, the, the, the family, the Scots family was the Keiths, he said. And, and, and he read all about what the Keiths did to his ancestors, almost wiping them out entirely. He said the whole thing really shook him up. It was hard to read how people could be so twisted. You know, feuds over the smallest thing that results in so much bloodshed. He said a few weeks later then, he met someone uh, at, uh, at a church event who had the last name of Keith. Right? And he said... It was weird. I don't know how to describe it. This ancient anger that had been asleep in me, <laughs> it woke up, right? And I was just like, oh, right? When as soon as I heard his last name, I was like, oh, you. <laughs> and he said, I felt so stupid, right? To realize my, my pride and, and hatred of another could be tied to my heritage. Something that I think our probably ancestors understood better than we do. But he said, okay, so I kind of just took that in, something to be aware of, right? He said, later that day, I was reading some G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors. (laughs) And then it hit me. 
Gilbert Keith Chesterton. <laughs> he said, so I looked it up, and sure enough, his mother was a Keith. He's right here this whole time. He's one of my favorites. But if G.K. Chesterton had been purchased by the blood of Christ, he's my brother. Maybe our great-great-great-grandparents had been mortal enemies. That might indeed be true. But that has been put to rest by the blood of Christ. Right? And so, so you can see how e- even if you're in a place where because of the blessing of God, which is a blessing that you should be very thankful for, frankly, if you're saying, I've always grown up in this covenant household of faith, God be praised for that. So do a little research and find out what God rescued you from, if, if possible. And indeed, that is our last point, is the power of the blood, the power of the blood of Christ. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, when I read that, I think we tend to focus on the fact, on the fact that we're saved by the blood of Jesus, by, his, by the life and death of our Savior. We've been brought near by the blood of Jesus, so we're thinking in terms of salvation, right? Because of his death on the cross, my sins have been forgiven, my identity has been transformed, I've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, I now have citizenship in this kingdom of light and life, and all of that is true, but I think there's something even more going on here, and that is the separation of Jew and Gentile was a matter of blood, right? It was, it was a matter of heritage. It was a matter of, of, of genealogy. And Paul says you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are now of His bloodline. This doesn't mean that your old bloodline and earthly heritage is obliterated. The fact that every nation, tongue, and tribe in Revelation is worshiping around the throne in the, in the new heavens and new earth apparently means that those nations... Uh, languages and tribes still exist in some meaningful sense. But it is interesting to note that brought near does not have a direct object. We've been brought near to what? To, To Christ or to each other? I would say, well, both. If we're brought near to Christ by His blood, that means we are also brought near to each other. To be brought near to Him is to be brought near to the rest of our covenant family. My primary identity, therefore, is now in Christ. And any identity that was before Christ, that I had before Christ, is either now a servant to Him, or it is dissolved in the waters of my baptism. This is what God is good to do in us. So at the start of this sermon, I observed that verse 11 begins with a therefore, and so that prompted a sort of investigation of what came before it, and and I told you that I I thought that therefore was not just tied to verse 10, but but to all of chapter 2 and what God has done with sinners dead in their trespasses. But I also told you I think there's some profit in considering the relationship to just those last three verses. And so this is the part where I'm going to have to ask you to visualize a little bit with me. It's the bit that was going on the slide, but I didn't, I didn't uh, upload it. But if you consider that verses 8 and 9 is the saved by grace through faith. And then verse 10 is where his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. 
And now verse 11 to 13 is remember who you were and remember who you are. Remember that you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. What I want you to see is that our identity in what God has done for us comes before the work and after the work. So, So who you are, by grace you've been saved, His workmanship, and the remember from where you've come. It comes before and after this this call to the work before us. You've been saved by grace through faith. You're God's workmanship. Therefore, walk after Him in good works. And as you do that, never forget who you were and because of Jesus, who you now are. All the work that we do in this life then is, is part of that story, that narrative that God is writing. So we can work with all the confidence that we are, in fact, surrounded by amazing grace on all sides. And so may that encourage our hearts this week as we go to the work that God has put before us. Glad and joyful about the reality that we are His workmanship, saved by grace through faith. Rejoicing in what He's done for us, remembering who we were before Christ and what Christ has done, that we've been brought near into this covenant family. In the name of Jesus, amen.